0: Hey, wasn't that good? So good. You should have been here Friday night. They memorized all of that and then all kinds of lines. I thought it was just going to be them singing songs, but they had a lot of things to memorize. I was blown away at how well the kids did on Friday night, and I particularly enjoyed Mateo's little move right there (laughs) at the end. Brother got some moves. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by what makes them angry. You can sometimes find out what somebody loves by what infuriates them and what it takes for them to get angry. A few years ago, um, one of our sons, Elijah, was uh, playing football, and he was uh, the quarterback his senior year for Male High School, one of the biggest football teams in the state. Uh, And they had a chance to win the state championship, and about midway through the year, they were undefeated, and they had beaten St. X. and they were about to play Trinity, and there was a a newspaper article uh, on the front page of the sports section, above the fold, full color, about him, and it was kind of an underdog story, but in it, the guy who wrote the article said some stuff about him that I didn't appreciate. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it was particularly frustrating since I, I, had seen, I had met the guy who wrote the article, and, and I knew he couldn't throw a football. He probably couldn't run 20 yards without oxygen, I, and, and he's c- critiquing my son, and I got upset. In fact, I, I actually kind of shocked myself by how angry I got. Has that ever happened to you? Like, you get angry about it, and then you, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I could. I, I mean, I was ready to go down to the Courier Journal and invite him outside. See who's tougher. You know, that, that's kind of how I felt. Well, because cause why? Because he's picking on somebody I love. And this was a few years ago, but just a few weeks ago, actually. I came home from work one day, and uh, Aiden was in the living room with Marlene, and they were talking, and actually Aisha was over that day too, and uh, they said, listen, something just went down at the Y. But don't worry, Aiden handled it well. And I'm like, okay, you know, but, but Mama's not about to handle it well right now. And when I say mom, it wasn't just his mama. I mean, Aisha was getting ready to tell somebody something. And I'm, and I'm being the calm one. And I'm like, okay, just you know, tell me what happened. I'll, you know, Everything's fine. And then he tells us the story again. And then by the time he got to the end of the story, I'm like, get in the car. We're going back there. <laughs> Treat my kids like that. I got angry. Why, why did I get angry? Because, because I love my kids. And, and when something threatens them, I, I, I get angry at whatever it is that threatens them. Um, next month, uh, Marlene and I are going to celebrate 30 years of our anniversary, 30 years of marriage. And I, I know you're thinking, you know, what did you marry her when she was four? Um, because she looks much younger than me. I know. And I tell her all the time, pretty soon somebody's going to think she's my trophy wife. Uh, cause I keep getting older and she doesn't. Um, but there's something I've learned about her in these 30 years. Didn't learn it right away, but I've learned something. This is my hermeneutic for interpreting my wife. Because I think probably all the husbands will understand what I'm saying when I say that I love her very much, but I don't always understand her. And and so what I've learned is if, if there's something going on and I don't understand something that she's feeling or thinking, if I will look for the love behind it. Because she's almost always motivated by love. Not always because she's not perfect, but, but almost always motivated by love. So if, if, if she's saying something I don't understand, if I'll stop and look for the love that's behind it, motivating it, I'll realize the reason she's saying what she's saying is she perceives someone to be threatening someone or something she loves. Because you can learn a lot about somebody, about what makes them angry. Which leads me to the question today. What makes Jesus angry? Does Jesus get angry? And if he does, what makes him angry? What does it take to infuriate Jesus? Now, we've been in this series of messages on the miracles of Jesus. um, And and we've been doing it because our goal has been to know Jesus better and to love him more. That's the end of all we do. We want to know him better and love him more. And, And if we're serious about knowing and loving Jesus, you can't just pick the easy parts of him. You can't just pick the parts that are like, hooray, you know, I feel yummy in my tummy. No, no, no. you got to know all of him. So what makes Jesus angry? It's an interesting question because the answer to that question may reveal what it is Jesus loves. And beyond that, it will reveal what God the Father cares about because one of the reasons that Jesus came was to reveal the Father to us. In John chapter 14, remember that story? There's Philip. He's like, Jesus, just, you know, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus is like, I am right here. And in fact, he says, John 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus came to reveal what the Father is like. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Meaning God's invisible. You can't see him, but through Jesus, you see him. You see, and and the the Greek word there is icon of God. And and in the Old Testament, they were forbidden to create images of God because we humans were made in the image of God. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is the image of God. And and so think of it this way. The word is icon. So so think of it this way. I have a program on my computer, and it's the word program. You know, when I type messages on, it's word. But it's always there, but you can't see it. It's invisible. But there's a little icon down at the bottom of the screen. And if you click the icon, it opens the invisible program. Jesus is the icon of God. You you can't see God. But if you click on it, that means that that he is the perfect revelation of what God is like. Jesus, and this is very important, this is a core Christian hermeneutic. Jesus is not a revelation of what God is like among many. He is the revelation of what God is like. The revelation that all other revelations were in the Old Testament pointing toward. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Or to say it another way, God is a Jesus-looking God. Another way to say it is this, God is Christ-like. Jesus is perfect theology. In other words, if you think you know something about God, but you can't find it in Jesus, then you have reason to Pause. You have reason to ask a question about it. Now, when I say that, I'm not dismissing Old Testament pictures of God. I I am not, right? It's rather popular these days to say, we're going to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. That is a terrible idea because you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament pointing the way. And furthermore, anytime a a group of people uh, destroys the Old Testament, the persecution of the Jews follows every time. You don't have to look past the 20th century. And a group of people who were putting away the Old Testament and the very next thing that came was the Holocaust. So we don't do that. But we recognize that all the Old Testament pictures of God are pointing to Jesus away from this. the... The Bible not a flat book. It crescendos in Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. The New American Standard translates that verse this way. No one has seen God at any time... The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, I thought that's a very different kind of sort of translation. So I was looking at the translations this week and kind of putting them back to back. They all agree no one's ever seen God, but they diverge significantly when they translate where Jesus is and what he's doing. So the ESV says, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. But the New Living Translation says, Who is near the Father's heart, he has revealed God to us. The New American Standard said, Who is in the bosom of the Father, he's explained to him. Now, this is interesting because this Greek word that, that gets translated in three different ways father's side, father's heart, or in the bosom, uh, most often in the ancient literature, if you look it up, it's almost always translated bosom or chest cavity. Thus, the English translations struggle to communicate it to us. And you might think, well, that's kind of weird. Jesus is in the chest cavity of the Father? Like what? Actually, it's beautiful if you'll let this in. Here's the picture. When the invisible God, who you can't see, who we can't comprehend, he is above us, beyond us, he is sovereign, he is majestic, he is transcendent, you can't figure him out, you can't wrap your mind, you're never going to think your way up to God. When that God wanted to reveal himself to us, it was as if the father grabbed his chest, ripped his chest open, and when we saw his heart, there was Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of what God is like. And then it says later in that sentence, he has revealed God to us, or he has explained God to us. The word in Greek actually is exegesis. Which means to describe or to reveal or to make known, to give a detailed account of. So, Jesus, John is saying, is the exegesis of God. He is the explanation, he is the detailed account of what God is like. So, basically, what all of those scriptures are saying is this if you want to know what the Father looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father feels about you, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father thinks about you, look at Jesus. If you want to know what makes the Father angry, look at Jesus. So let's do that today. Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3. I want to look at a scene from Jesus' life when Jesus got angry. And you're probably thinking it was at the temple overturning the tables. This is before that. Mark chapter 3. And remember, we're we're studying this because we want to know Jesus more and we want to love him better. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, get the picture here. Jesus' popularity is rising. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Just side note here, Jesus went to church. Just not even going to preach that, just going to say that. Jesus went to church. Okay, so, so Jesus walks in and the religious people have planted a dude with a shriveled hand on the front row so that they see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. It's because the text says they're looking for a way to trap him. Right now, you might say, well, the text doesn't say they're planting him. And that's true. But let me tell you something. I have been in church for 50 50 years, okay? Literally, I was born on a Sunday, and I was in church the next Sunday, I think, probably. Okay? So so over 50 years, I've been been around a lot of religious people. And I'm just telling you, they planted this brother. Because they want to trap him to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is lawful, ask them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill it? But they remained silent. They remained silent. He just asked, which is lawful, do good or evil? And they don't don't have an answer. And so Jesus, man, this triggered him. Because his heart is broken for this man. Somehow he knows what it must be like to live every single day with a physical challenge. So his heart goes out to him and he wants to heal him. He looks around the room. He sees it's full of religious leaders who are poised, ready to pounce on him. He sizes up the whole deal. He realizes it's a sting operation. Meant to discredit him. Verse 5. He looked around at them in anger. The message says he was furious. The word most often in the Bible gets translated as wrath. He was angry, and he wasn't just angry, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. You know what Jesus realized? All of these religious leaders, they didn't give a flying rip about the guy with the handicap. They, they, They didn't care about his arm. They didn't care about his life. They didn't care about his loss, his future, his soul, his eternity. They were simply using him. That's it. Just using him in their sting operation. And Jesus can't believe it. How do you do that? What, like people are props to be used? So he was angry, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I want you to see three things real quickly in this that will help us understand what makes Jesus angry. Number one, the sin of the Pharisees. Number two, the anger of Jesus. And number three, the lesson to us. Okay, Real quickly, number one, the sin of the Pharisees. The sin of the Pharisees here that caused Jesus' anger is not their concern for the Sabbath. It wasn't. This is important to understand. Jesus affirmed even celebrated the original purpose of the Sabbath, which was the need for rest. You know where the Sabbath comes from. I know I got some Bible readers in here in the Old Testament, in Genesis, in the creation narrative. uh, God creates for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested from their labor, and so God's people were to rest on the seventh day. Originally, it was a gift from God to his people. It was a day to replenish, a day to rest, a day to find peace, a day to remember that God is your provider, not the fields. A day to remember God is your provider, not your job, not the government. Nobody else is, nobody owns, the, the way, Sabbath was about the fact nobody owns me but God. He owns me. And so you stop and you rest for him. And in the Old Testament, celebrating the Sabbath was a gift that became a sign that, that these people were not owned by anybody else. They were not enslaved to things. And so it was a blessing from God and a reminder that we aren't God. So, Jesus had no problem with the Sabbath. In fact, in chapter two, he says, right before this text, he says that he is the the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What infuriated Jesus, what he squashed, was the legalism that had been built up around the Sabbath that totally obscured its original meaning and intention. Because, see, the original law was from God and it was good. But they had built all these man-made laws. Now, you're going to see a a figure up here that I think is helpful to see. So i got the big L in the middle. That is the law of God. That is not man-made. This is what God said. And God said, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But humans, because we have this propensity, trying to keep people from breaking the big law of God, the actual law of God, they made up a bunch of man-made laws which created a fence around the law of human laws. And the whole idea is if you don't break the, man, the little L, you won't break the big L. Because the little L's are keeping a fence around the big L. Everybody with me? Yeah. So, that's what they, so they came up with things. They said, so you're not supposed to work. That's the big L on the Sabbath. So what does that mean? Well, they came up with 39 different things that were actually considered work. These were the small L's that went around. So, for example, you can only give medical attention to someone if their life was in danger. So you could help a woman in childbirth if it appeared that maybe the baby might not make it. Uh, An infection could be treated uh, and a life could be helped if it was saving a life. If a wall fell on somebody on the Sabbath, you were allowed to move enough of the wall to see if they were alive. If they were, you were allowed to finish removing the wall just enough to get them out. If they were already dead, you just left them until tomorrow. Because that would be work, and we know you're not supposed to work. So uh, if you cut yourself, you could put pressure on it to stop the bleeding, but you couldn't put ointment on to heal it. Uh, you, if you got a fracture, you couldn't set it till the next day. If you sprained your foot, you waited till the next day. Bottom line is this. It, an injury could be kept from getting worse, but you couldn't heal it. Because that would be work. Now, to understand why the Pharisees were so upset about Jesus breaking the little man-made laws that were the fence around the law, you have to understand what it meant to them. It wasn't, Sabbath wasn't just another rule. It was a matter of national pride. In fact, earlier on in the war of the Maccabees, when Judas Maccabeus was leading them against Antiochus Epiphanes, there had been people who they preferred to die rather than work on the Sabbath, The Romans had compulsory uh, military service, but eventually they exempted the Jews from military service because they would be in a battle, and they would come up to the Sabbath, and they'd just stop fighting. And the Romans would be like, are you still coming at us? So they just said, you know what, just don't worry about it. So it was a big deal. They were absolutely unbending on Sabbath observance, even if it cost their life. Why? Because it was more than a gift. It had become more than a gift. It had become a badge of being Jewish. It was their national flag and it was prophetic actually because the understanding was that that the seventh day, the day of rest, spoke of the great day of rest that would come when Messiah would come. There would be a new heavens and a new earth. Messiah would come back. He would return them from exile. He would liberate Israel. They would cease from their labor. So every Sabbath was a picture of the great Sabbath that was coming. And that sounds pretty impressive to me. So why would Jesus be furious about that? Here's why. Because it had become a weapon. It had ceased to be a gift. It had gone from being a gift to being a badge to being a weapon. And it had ceased to remind them that, hey, we're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And instead, it just became proof that, hey, you guys are in darkness. It was a way to say, we're in, you're out. God loves us, not you. And it wasn't something that just made them superior to the Gentiles. They used it against themselves over each other to say, who was the more loyal Jew by who was stricter on the Sabbath? And and I can feel better about myself because I do better on that than you do. And they got to the point where the rule mattered more than the reality. And when you allow a rule to matter more than the reality, you no longer have a relationship with God. What you have now is religion. And when you're controlled by religion, you start doing what the Pharisees did. You start using people as props. You, you quit seeing them as inherently made in the image of God, and, and you see them as a means to your own end. And before we judge them too quickly, have we not done the same? Has not God in his mercy by his Holy Spirit given us gifts and, and the point of the gifts of the Spirit are, are here to build up the body. But has there not been an occasion? Well, I'm, I'm going to reword that. There have been occasions in my life where God, I've taken the gift God gave me, and instead of it to use it just to build up the body, I've used it to say, I am better than you. It's become a weapon. So I've got to be slow to judge the Pharisees here because I have been one. We even sometimes use salvation in this way so that we've been saved by grace through faith, right? And so uh, sometimes salvation, though, goes from something that we received as a gift and we want everybody else to receive it as a gift. And it goes from that to being a badge saying, we're the people of God, you're not. And and you've become a weapon that we wield against people. And when you do that, you're no longer acting like Jesus. At that point, you have religious activity. And hear me, religious activity delivers no one. Sabbath started as a gift for freedom, and it became a weapon to enslave, and that made Jesus angry, which leads to the second point, is Jesus' anger. Now, I know talking about Jesus' anger, people get a little touchy uh, because of the world we live in, you know, and, and, and as soon as I talk about this, people start getting pictures in their head that comes from Greek mythology, right, where the gods were petty, spiteful, vindictive, malicious, they threw temper tantrums. You know, in the Medusa myth, Medusa was this beautiful lady who served in Athena's, uh, she was a priestess in Athena's temple, but then she was doing stuff with Poseidon, this god of the sea, and Athena found her, and then he cursed, she cursed uh, Medusa so that her hair was made into snakes, and she was so ugly that people turned to stone, which seems a little harsh to me, but that's how the Greek mythology was, that's how the Greek gods, that's not Jesus. That, that, that's not, that God, Jesus is never p- petty or spiteful or vindictive. One thing arouses his evil, his, his, his anger, and that is evil. John Stott has written a great book called The Cross of Christ. It's an excellent book on the cross. And, and he defines the wrath of God this way. Listen to this. He says, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. That right there is worth writing down. That, that is a, a definition of the wrath of God. His, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its form and manifestations. Then he says, In short, God's anger is poles apart from ours. What provokes our anger, injured vanity, never provokes his. What provokes his anger, evil, seldom provokes ours. See, we usually get... Angry because we got our feelings hurt or we got injured, you know, um, uh, you know, or whatever. But God never does that. He only gets anger, angry at evil. So what is Jesus furious about in this text? Let's look at it more closely. I'm going to give you two reasons for Jesus' anger in this text. Number one is the absurdity of religion. Sabbath was supposed to be about restoring the diminished, right? It was supposed to be about replenishing the drain, repairing the broken. So certainly, if a guy's got a shriveled hand, you'd want to heal him on the Sabbath, right? Oh, not to the Pharisees. Religiosity had so twisted this thing that healing was unlawful to them, but then they can run out and plot Jesus' death on the Sabbath. Just think of the absurdity of that. Jesus says, which is lawful? to save life or to kill and then he gives life they shout violation of the sabbath and then they run out to plot to kill him on the sabbath do you see the irony there they're plotting to kill on the sabbath because he gave life on the sabbath you see how absurd religion can get and it made Jesus angry he got angry at how religion had twisted god's good gift of sabbath that he, that he had meant for freedom and now was used to enslave people. So he got angry at that. And then he heals the guy. Isn't this interesting? The fruit of Jesus' anger is that somebody gets healed. Even his anger leads to somebody getting life. And the fruit of the Pharisees' anger was they killed Jesus. And that leads to the second thing that, that angered Jesus here, I believe. It wasn't just the absurdity of religion. It was the devastation of sin. See, I think he took one look at this guy, and he was moved with compassion. I think Jesus was angry because he knows this is not the way God created the world to be. Something has gone dreadfully wrong, and that something is sin. And as a result of sin, there is so much suffering in the world. And that angered Jesus. I think it's right for us to be angry at the devastation of sin. N.C. Wright put it this way. He said, The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. Do you hear what he's saying? Here's what he's saying. Why does God get angry with evil? Because he loves us. You guys, there's a sense in which, and and this is kind of counterintuitive, but there is a sense in which God's anger against evil is proof of his love for us. I mean, I've had more than one set of parents in my office whose kids were not following the Lord and tears were running down their face and... They saw their kids being destroyed, and they were so angry—not at their kid, at the things that were destroying their kid. I—I I, I, I had, I had a mother in in my office whose son was an alcoholic, and tears were running down her face. And she said, "I hate alcoholism." I had a husband of a wife who was dying of cancer in my office, and with tears running down his eye, he slammed his fist and said, "I hate cancer." He hated what it was doing to his family. See, here's my point, you guys. Some of you have struggled with a picture of God uh, where he's angry with you and he's kind of irritated with you. And any request you might bring to him, he's like, I'm too busy, you know, because he's just irritated with you. But you need to let that go because that is not the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. What you need to see is a picture of God the Father who's not angry at you but for you. Jesus is not mad at the guy with the shriveled hand. He doesn't say, what is wrong with you? How, I can't believe you have a shriveled hand. What is, you know, you're in a synagogue. We're supposed to give God our best. Why are you bringing in your shriveled hand? What's wrong if you just had more faith? He doesn't say that. He's not, he's not angry at the guy with the shriveled hand. He's angry for the guy. And here's the deal. If you know the Lord, that means if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, then Jesus has already borne God's wrath for you. It's already been taken care of. And some of you know that intellectually. But you've never really let the gospel in your hearts so that you really understand This is how God is for you now. If you're you're having trouble with that, just hear the word of the Lord, okay? Just hear the word of the Lord, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Okay, that's what he's saying. We were, this is who we were. We were objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we've been saved. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, wait for the son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, the first thing you got to say about that verse is there is a coming wrath. Uh, I'm not not being a friend to you if I don't tell you there is a coming wrath. And here's the good news. If you're in Christ, it says right here, he rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my point. If you know the Lord, God isn't angry at you. He's angry for you at all the results of sin and evil in your life. You know, I sometimes say that there's things that I hate. Like I hate, and that's kind of a strong word. And and some of the things I say I hate, I don't really hate. Like I say I hate the Dallas Cowboys. I don't really hate the Dallas Cowboys. They irritate me, okay. But I don't hate the Dallas Cowboys. I say I hate the Duke Blue Devils. I actually hate them. Uh, No, I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. That that was not the Lord. Sorry. The devil tempted me. No, I don't. I don't. I actually don't hate Duke. Okay. But there are some things I do hate. I hate racism, I hate the fact that one of the great sins of our nation around its founding was the sin of slavery and the fruit of that sin has been with us for many years and I hate that. I hate child abuse. I hate cancer. I hate the lies that Satan is telling our children these days about sexuality and gender, hate. Because I love my kids, there are some things I hate. And now my grandpa. Oh boy, I was holding my grandson last night. And the other grandpa's here right now. i tell you what, Alan, if somebody was trying to do something against our grandson, huh? Yeah, it takes SEAL Team 6 to hold us back. Because that's, that's what it means to be a grandpa. You can just call me Pops. Here's what I'm saying to you, God God, our Father, is like that. He is furious for you. Let me ask you a question Is that how you see God? Tell me the truth. Is that how you see him. That leads right into the third and final thing, very quickly, very quickly. The lesson for us: there are three characters in this story that you could relate to, that you might identify with. The first is the man with the shriveled hand. Now we haven't said a whole lot about him because the guy doesn't say a word in the whole story. We don't know his name. He doesn't wax eloquent. He doesn't even demonstrate faith. All he does is what Jesus tells him: stand up. Okay, stretch out your hand. Got healed on the Sabbath didn't work for it, didn't earn it, just got a gift. Maybe you're here today and maybe you have a shriveled hand and maybe it's not your hand. Maybe, maybe there's some other area of your life that is diminished. Maybe it's your marriage or your finances or maybe depression has wreaked havoc in your life. You need to see that God is not angry at you. He is angry for you. His attitude towards you is revealed in Jesus Christ. As a father loves his children. Remember we were at the beginning of the service, there were less of you here at the beginning. But at, at the beginning of the service, we, we read Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children. hmm And as a father loves his children, God wants to protect and heal, and that's how he feels about you. So if you're the person with the shriveled hand, this is the good news to you. But there's another group of people you could relate to in this group. It's not just the man with the shriveled hand, it's the men with shriveled hearts. The Pharisees. See, if we're not careful, we can be the kind of people for whom the rule matters more than the reality. And we can do this. If we're not careful, guys, we have to, this is a warning to us. So we don't want to become the kind of people who take God's gifts to us and turn them into weapons to be arrogant about or turn people into props to be used. And if that's us, then we, then we just need to repent today. If you, if you see yourself in that, you just need to repent from that and then just let the gospel in. Just let the good news in. Man, if you're, if you're the one with the shriveled heart, if you let the, and what does the gospel say? The gospel says, you didn't save yourself. No, you know, it's not like you did 0.01% you know, of, of your salvation. Jesus did 99.99 and you did, point, no, you did zero. Okay. Martin Luther said, the only contribution to your salvation that you provided was the sin that God so graciously forgives. All right, so you you didn't save yourself. You're saved 100% by grace, so how could you ever look down on anybody? You can't, not if you believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you can never look down on anybody ever again. You can't, but guess what? The other side of that is true. If you believe the gospel, you can never feel inferior to anybody ever again. Yeah, I don't have to feel inferior to you. You know why? God Almighty, who created heaven and earth, Everything else is made in China, but God made heaven and earth. Okay. All right. God who made heaven and earth picked me. So I don't have to feel inferior to anybody in this room. And you don't either. Man, if you believe the gospel, you'll never look down on anybody ever again. If you believe the gospel, you'll never feel inferior to anybody ever again because God had died. He said, you know what God said? He looked down at me and because of what Jesus did on the cross, he said, Tim Parrish is righteous. God said that. So now I don't have to worry about what you think about me, but I don't even have to worry what I think about me. I just have to worry what he thinks about me. And he already said, you are righteous because of Jesus. Man, if you let the gospel in, not only will you never look down on anybody ever again, you'll never feel inferior to anybody ever again, but you'll never be afraid of anybody ever again. Why? Because the gospel says I've been adopted into the family. My Abba is God Almighty. My Abba owns the place, and when I say the place, I don't mean this building, I mean the universe. How am I going to be afraid of you? There's a third person you could relate to here, and this is where it turns into mission. Because it's not just the man with a shriveled hand or the men with shriveled hearts, it's Jesus. Because the text is actually about Jesus, you guys. See, at some point you've identified with with either one of these people. If you've been, and you've probably been both. You've been the Pharisee and the guy with the shriveled hand. So have I. But at some point we need to recognize the gospel and then we need to relate to Jesus, meaning this, we need to follow Jesus and be the kind of people who bring the freedom of Jesus to those who are bound. We bring the healing of Jesus to those with a shriveled life. We bring the wholeness of Jesus, the life of Jesus to those around us. In fact, I think it's a fair question to ask ourselves, you know, when when we're coming to this text, how do I treat people? You know, is is it like Jesus? Or am I more like the Pharisees? That's, That's a fair question. Do people leave my presence feeling more free? or do they feel more bound? Do I, do I reach out to people around me who are suffering? Amen. And, and just, hey, can I pray for you? Can I minister healing to you? Do I, do I stand up for those who are downtrodden? These are good questions because they're my questions and I think my questions are good. Yeah. Here's one, do I like Jesus, love people enough to be furious.